0: Neobanks are having a lot of success getting customers to open accounts, but very few are making any money at it. Christoph Stegmeier from the global consultancy Simon Kucher joins us to discuss profitability challenges and other findings of their 2022 study on neobanking in the U.S. and around the world. Actionable insights can help power smart decisions. Each week, the BAI Banking Strategies podcast focuses on important issues facing financial services leaders, as well as the emerging trends that are rapidly reshaping the financial industry. I'm Terry Badger, your host and the Managing Editor at BAI. Pull up a chair and join us. Neobanks, also known as digital challenger banks, are out to disrupt the incumbent banking industry. So how's that working out for them? Our guest on the podcast this week is Christoph Stegmeier, Munich-based senior partner at Simon Kutcher and co-author of a recent report on neobanking in the U.S. and globally. Christoph, we're happy to have you on the BAI Banking Strategies podcast.
1: Thanks, Terry, for having me.
0: Christoph, let's begin our conversation with a little more background about Simon Kutcher and particularly the sort of work you and the firm do in the banking space.
1: Simon Kutcher is an originally German strategy consultancy, now present in around 30 countries, 40 offices. We're around 2,000 consultants. We started as a pricing and marketing specialist and now really focus on everything related to growth, be it strategy, sales, marketing products, or launching new ventures. And that is particularly in the banking space, now related to launching a fintech or a neobank. So my role there is in the digital banking space, and I've worked with several of the neobanks uh, in this world in both launching them, growing them, and on the monetization strategy for them of how to make money on these customers that they have acquired.
0: You are one of the co-authors of a Simon Kutcher report published earlier this year on the state of neobanking globally. What are some of the key conclusions that you and your research partner reached in that report?
1: Maybe it's worth uh, starting with the definition of neobanks and who we looked at, and that it really we define banks that are based on a new technology stack and particularly important that follow a clear disruption path. So if the bank doesn't disrupt a specific product or process and just does anything copy-paste of what others have done, we wouldn't call it a neobank. We also categorize them as banks that are focusing mainly on the mobile channel and banks that are really eyeing the the primary relationships. And that's probably the biggest difference for us between a fintech and a neobank. Fintechs very often optimize a single product or process while the neobanks really go after the full relationship and hence are competitors of the larger incumbent banks. Now, you mentioned the report. I think there's probably four key facts that are worth sharing. The first one is, growth of the industry that has been phenomenal. So we are now counting around 400 neobanks globally. And in the peak years in 2019, 2020, we saw roughly 100 new neobanks launching in any of these given years, which basically means uh, two per week somewhere launching in the world. So growth clearly had been fantastic. That growth came along with now roughly 1 billion customer accounts being within these 400 neobanks. So 1 billion clients, the valuation of these banks is now at around 300 U.S. dollar billion. That's our, the third big number. So 300 billion for a 1 billion account industry. That roughly means that every client is valued at roughly 300 U.S. dollars at the time being. Clearly, valuations have gone down a little bit since we've run the study earlier this year, but we're still expecting the number to be in a similar range today. And then the final fact, the number uh, I wanted to share, and that's one that usually causes a lot of interest and discussion, is the, the fact on profitability. Because what we found is that out of these 400 banks, less than 5% today are profitable. And that, of course, sparks an interesting discussion around whether or not or these banks uh, will reach their break-even anytime soon.
0: So that early focus on top-line growth that you were talking about It sounds a lot like the approach taken by many tech companies going back to the 90s and, of course, more recently by so-called disruptors. Is this growth-first mentality how we should be looking at neobanks who've barely been around for a decade?
1: You mentioned an important point, and it's absolutely true that the growth-first mentality is something we are seeing a lot with the neobanks. And I think it's coming predominantly from the fact that many of those are owned by vcs so the vcs are using the same mindset for the neobanks that they've used in the tech industry before so while that comparison is true i think there's something important to consider i would not want to compare one of the neobanks with the tech companies the amazons and paypal's of this world particularly amazon is used quite often as a comparison of saying look amazon hasn't made any profits for i don't know how many years and it really got them into the position they are now they're reaping the benefits isn't that the same thing that will happen with the neobanks my answer to that would be that the banking industry is so sufficiently different from the tech industry that while you can focus on scale for a long time it's going to be just much much harder to move from scale to profitability because imagine you're a client with one of the neobanks you get your free or very cheap offers for a long time the moment the bank changes prices the first thing you do is you switch to your bank number two bank number three. And that's clearly something where an Amazon or a Netflix or other companies had a, a much better hold on their customers after that time. So the comparison is right, but I think the outcome or the answer to that is is a different one. And for my personal opinion, I would have expected to see more neobanks already being profitable. Many of them are in their year six, seven or eight of existence my ambition level, it would be to get those banks profitable in year four or five. And that's something that unfortunately we haven't seen so far.
0: What do you think accounts for that? The surprisingly low number, so few of them have achieved profitability by this point. And do you think them getting into the black is just a matter of needing more time? You know, maybe year four, five, six, seven, maybe that wasn't enough. Or are there more fundamental issues standing the way? Like Perhaps there are simply too many competitors and that maybe some consolidation may be in order.
1: I think the answer here is is quite clear. More time doing the same will not get them into the black. So it really requires a shift of gear, a shift of focus. That focus that I mentioned on scale versus profitability is going to be extremely important if those banks want to move into the, the profitability zone. So the key issue here. If you look at profitability, you look at both sides of the equation, the revenue side and the cost side. In fact, the cost side, most banks are doing a a reasonable good job in getting costs per customers to low levels. They're reaching scale. That's not an issue to what we've seen in in, in the numbers from many of these banks. The issue really is on the income side. And uh, you could guess sort of what's the average level of revenues per customers in these neobanks. And Our analysis shows we're talking about ranges of somewhere between 20 to 30 US dollars per customer. If you compare that, that's probably a type of revenues Uber would get from one ride of a customer, or that's the amount of revenues you pay at your neighboring restaurant once. And that's the same type of revenues, the banks that you're dealing with the entire year is getting from you. So there's a big, big issue and it's really a multiple lower of what traditional banks are seeing from their customers. If the banks are not able and capable of increasing that number sufficiently, we think three things will happen. We're already seeing that in the market. The first is that some of the neobanks will merge. So some of the larger ones will say, we we can't do it by ourselves. We are seeing that already in in other parts of the world. So there has been a quite notable merger of the two of the largest SME neobanks in Europe recently, a a French bank, Conto, taking over German bank uh, Penta. So we'll see more of that in, in many countries. Secondly, we'll see more acquisitions of neobanks by incumbent banks. And thirdly, I think we'll we'll also see more neobanks, uh, unfortunately, throwing the towel. And again, we have in over the last few weeks and months, we have already seen that happening. I think uh, Walt in Australia has been one of the key examples in that.
0: Christoph, we've been talking about neobanks globally up to this point. So I want to kind of narrow in more on neo banks that are operating in the US. Are your findings about these banks, the ones that are working in the states, are they in line with the global trends? And if they're not, if they diverge, how are they diverging?
1: They're broadly similar in terms of their challenges. So growth really is is okay. They're on a good growth path, but monetization is not. So I think that's the big story in the US as well. But I think it's worth differentiating a bit further. So if you're looking at the U.S. and if I compare the banks here to their international peers, I think in terms of those focused on the investment business. And if we span sort of the definition of Neobank a bit wider, we'll we'll have quite a few of those in the U.S., uh, like Robinhood or, or Acorns or Stash, for example. I think they're ahead of the curve. So we see a lot of international players looking at them sort of as their, as their, their best practice uh, peers. Now, if we sort of move to the next segment, I would call them the classic consumer neobanks. So the big ones being Dave, Chime, Aspiration, and Varro, and so on. We do see them pretty much at par with their international peers. In fact, in terms of innovation, they probably can move it up a notch in order to be at par with some of their new peers in, in the APAC region, which there lots going on in that space. But overall, I think they're doing all right. Their big question is now monetization. Where we are seeing a bit of a gap in the in the country is on the small business and freelancer side. Those markets are more developed in other nations than in the U.S. So we still have 12, 13 SME neobanks in the country, some of them starting to accelerate their growth, but we haven't seen the same level of disruption in the small business sector that we have seen elsewhere.
0: You're kind of talking about the segment targeting of these neo banks but when you look more deeply maybe at, at that small percentage of neo banks that have managed to generate a positive bottom line for themselves and for their vc investors do they have certain characteristics structure wise or strategy wise that you think accounts for their better performance
1: the number one sort of criteria for being successful is first of all finding not any pain point with their customers, but finding a pain point that customers are willing to pay for. That's a big, big difference. So we have a lot of these banks that are not successful. Pain point, yes, they get customers, but are customers paying for that? No. So finding that, and that is more often in the space of credit, it's in in lending, that's more often in the space of investments, but it's not so easy to find that, Pain point with a high willingness to pay in the classic account payment card space, I would say. If you look at our data that we have gathered on the revenue mix of Neobanks, we still find about 70% of the revenue sitting in interchange fees and, and account fees. And that's just very, very t- difficult to make that a, a profitable model. So it's the winners, what do they do differently? They have a different mix of products. They're focusing more on balance sheet, they're focusing more on investments. They are also more innovative than others. So we have seen quite a lot of the neobanks being innovative for their MVP, but then actually they're starting to lack innovation when it comes to to product two, three, and four. So these are the clear differentiators, I would say, finding the right pain points, focusing on the right product mix, constantly innovating, important. And, And then there's a few hygiene criteria like customer acquisition costs, bringing those down, modern tech stacks, digital mindset and so on, but that's kind of the hygiene we're seeing with pretty much all of the banks. So just getting your customer acquisition costs down is not going to make a profitable Neobank.
0: Some of the biggest U.S. banks are moving into the Neobank space in a high-profile way. Marcus from Goldman Sachs, probably being the best known of this bunch. And like with so many of the digital upstarts, profits are proving elusive. I just saw an estimate that Marcus is expected to lose more than a billion dollars in 2022 alone. What's the strategy here in trying to create something from the ground up, given that these banks could easily buy out a neo bank and its clientele, as you mentioned before in this conversation? I really think there's
1: three strategies. So before I I get back to the question of buy versus build, I think from a strategy perspective, any bank should have a, I would call a digital bank strategy in place. So all of the banks do have a digital strategy these days, but a digital bank strategy really means should I build one? Should I buy one? Or should I just defend against the upcoming threat of the neobanks? For the first two, it is very important what's your strategic rationale of having these speedboats, as we would call them. And there's typically three ways of, of going about it. The first one is you want to have a speedboat for attacking a new geography that could be within the country or it could be outside of the country, an international plan, such as what, what JP Morgan is doing with Chase in Europe, for example. The second option is that you are going after a, a new segment or a segment that your existing brand is not very successful so far. There's some good examples, mostly globally, but also a few in the US that have done that successfully in, in establishing that speedboat. And then the third option is really going head to head against your mother brand with the speedboat. That typically is the more difficult strategy, because that obviously comes with all the cannibalization topic behind once you figure that out sort of and then come to the point do I build or do I, I buy i would say building a speedboat is very easy these days uh, building a profitable one is is not so much and the reason for that being that the large banks typically don't have these i would call them the startup genes uh, within so we've seen some of the banks just being spending too much money up front and then it's very difficult sort of building something from scratch, but having a budget that's in the hundreds of million, sort of keeping costs in line with the increasing revenues. And so for those banks, I think acquiring one is a very viable second option at the the point in time, particularly as the valuations have come down a bit. We'll see a lot more of these acquisitions to come, I'm I'm quite sure.
0: Looking more long-term at the future of neobanking, is it a positive indicator that established players feel compelled to get involved in the space? Should incumbents be worried that these digital competitors will disrupt banking in the same way as Amazon, as you mentioned before, Zappos is another good example. the way that these companies disrupted retail?
1: I think there's a piece of good news for the banks. Disruption in banking is just not happening as quickly as it is happening in the retailer space. We are seeing disruption. I mean, undoubtedly. So what the big techs are doing, what Apple is doing in the space, what the PSPs are doing. So Stripe, to name one of them, I think they're actually one of the big threats to the banks overall, as they're disrupting more and more parts of the value chain. We're seeing the embedded finance topic that I think will be one of the major topics in the years to come. So we do see disruption, but we're not seeing it at the same speed as we've seen it in other industries. And so that extra time just gives banks more time to prepare. If they don't do anything, disruption will destroy them. If they take the right countermeasures, they still have a good chance to counter that disruption.
0: Christoph, let's say you get tired of being a consultant someday soon, and you decide to start up your own neobank in the US. Knowing what you know about the neobank business, what niche within the space do you think has the most upside potential either because of fewer competitors or better scale opportunities or whatever reason? So
1: first of all, I think there's still a lot of gold to dig in that space. So I'd be absolutely up for, uh, for that type of role or challenge. I would mention two segments. The first one is the small business segment. I think there's a lot to disrupt and to gain in the space in the US. But maybe there's another one that would be even more of my favorite. And that is, I would call it the 50 plus generation, the more affluent generation that has quite surprisingly been not addressed by almost all banks. So almost all of them have been going after the digital natives. And my explanation for that is that as founders are typically young, they go after the younger generation, but that is part of why monetization is so difficult. It's a more harder to monetize segment. I think what we'll see and where I put my money on is the 50 plus neobank. And the, the generation is almost as digital as the, the young generation and uh, probably much faster time to profitability than the segments we've seen so far.
0: Well, as somebody in that generation, I'll be standing by to see how the uh, neobanks come after me. So Christoph Stegmeyer, senior partner at Simon Kucher. many thanks again for joining us on the BAI Banking Strategies podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Terry.
0: A few takeaways from the conversation on neobanks with Christoph Stegmeier. First, the Simon Kucher research determined that there are about 400 neobanks globally, with more than half of them being launched since 2019. These neobanks have roughly 1 billion customer accounts and a combined valuation of around $300 billion. By these metrics, neobanks are an industry presence, but they struggle to attain profitability. The Simon Kucher research found that fewer than 1 out of 20 are in the black. It appears that the neobanks are following an established tech industry path of focusing first on growing their presence and worrying about profits later. Christoph believes this is because neobanks are owned by venture capital firms that use this growth-first approach when funding tech startups. But he says banking is different, and when a neobank tries to increase its low prices, he predicts many customers will bail. And finally, Christoph says, while some disruption is occurring in banking, it's not happening as quickly as it is in retail or other sectors. One of the areas of banking subject to the most disruption so far is payment services. And he says this represents a serious threat for incumbent institutions, but overall banks and credit unions still have time to prepare for the disruption coming their way from neobank upstarts. Thank you for listening to the BAI Banking Strategies podcast. I'm Terry Badger, Managing Editor at BAI. Please visit us at BAI.org for more actionable insights on themes that are important for the financial services industry.